Hello, everyone. It's been a month since the first season of Back Away Slowly wrapped up. I've gotten some incredible support in that time, and I'm so glad that the show has piqued your interest. It isn't quite time for season two yet, but instead I'm using this episode to cover parts of season one that I wasn't able to share before, usually because they didn't comfortably fit into the script. I also have a correction that I'd like to discuss, as well as some updates about the locations themselves. If you'd like to support the development of Season 2 and the videos of Season 1, you can go to our Patreon listed in the show notes. Sources can be found at backawayslowlypodcast.com, and you can follow our other socials to stay up to date. But without further ado, let's cover the news and extra information about Season 1's locations. First, we'll briefly revisit Georgia's Lake Lanier, which has continued to be a formidable safety hazard. Of the 39 drownings that have occurred in Georgia in 2023, eight of those have been in Lake Lanier alone. This may not sound like a lot, but those eight lives are the most drownings in one year that Lake Lanier has seen in four years. Nearby Lake Alatuna has a similar number of visitors as Lake Lanier, but it only has one-third of the deaths that Lake Lanier has. Although we've discussed reckless behavior on the lake, a number of these deaths appear terrifyingly innocuous. Some of these victims simply got in the water for a swim, or in one case, hopped off of a jet ski to swim to land, and then never resurfaced. It's quite terrifying that you could go on a relaxing weekend at your local lake. Your group of friends chat in the water. Someone dunks their head under the surface for only a moment. And that typically harmless decision proves to be deadly. As of the writing of this episode, there's a petition to drain, clean, restore, and improve safety measures at Lake Lanier in honor of Kyle Glover, an 11-year-old boy and the son of the petition creator who was killed in a jet ski incident. In regards to the accident, the petition states, quote, the Department of Natural Resources testified in court that the perpetrator should have been cited, but timely action was not taken. I've been messaged or approached by several people after the Lake Lanier episode was posted, all of whom highlight drunk boating for being responsible for many occurrences such as this. The lack of official consequences for these actions, or proper monitoring, means that these tragedies and other close calls continue to happen. The petition contains eight goals that it wishes to address in regards to Lake Lanier. These goals include draining and cleaning the lake, stricter regulations for water-related activities, more enforcement of rules and regulations, a study to understand how the lake's construction has affected water currents, more widely available education on the risks of the lake, responsible protection of the lake's ecosystem, and to acknowledge the racial tensions surrounding the lake. If anyone is interested in viewing this petition, the link will be included in the episode resources on the podcast website. There is also a movement to change the name of locations like Lake Lanier and the Beaufort Dam. Essentially, people aren't incredibly fond of major landmarks being named after Confederate soldiers. U.S. Representative Andrew Clyde opposes this movement, as he believes that this would be an attempt to rewrite history and, quote, create unnecessary mass confusion. He also told the Times that, quote, connections between the Confederacy, Lanier, and Buford are really too remote to justify changing the names, 
saying each man is better known for something other than their time in the military. Now we travel north a ways to Mammoth Cave National Park. We'll spend a little bit more time here, as there were a few mysteries that I can now cover. The first story we're going to look at is the sightings at the Green River. The Green River controls the water level of the Echo River, which runs through Mammoth Cave. But it's at the surface level of the Green River where something interesting has been spotted. In the 1940s, multiple witnesses reported a 12-foot-long, 300-pound beast swimming in the Green River, particularly around the Hutchins Ferry. In 1941, a ferryman recalled seeing a beast frequently. His experience went as follows, quote, It's got a powerful big head. It could swallow a man without no trouble. Once it opened its mouth and I got a glimpse inside, I could have rolled a barrel, and I don't mean a keg, I mean a barrel, in its mouth. It's got fins and tail just like any fish, and eyes as big as horse apples sitting in its head. It's got the longest whiskers or feelers you ever saw, and once when it jumped, I thought I saw legs on its belly, but I can't rightly say about the legs. An article in Bowling Green Daily News in 2022 points out that although this creature was seen by numerous people, that accounts should be taken with a grain of salt, as one of those accounts reported that the splash from the creature's leap from the water was 200 feet high. Undoubtedly, Judge Executive Sanders knew that he was greatly exaggerating a tsunami-level splash, but his next statement didn't help with his credibility because he went further than a description, planning to actually catch it. That plan to capture a monster that created a 200-foot wave entailed, quote, I have a steel cable and a hook fashioned out of an iron bar. For bait, I am going to use a hogshead. And if that don't work, I will use a big groundhog. Pork is entirely too expensive to use. Shockingly, he was unsuccessful. After a years-long hiatus, the Green River Monster was spotted in 1959. Arnold Clark told the Daily News that it was, quote, as long as a Joe boat. It disappeared in the water when I opened the door to my car. Now, the Green River isn't a stranger to large fish, but even those are dwarfed by these reports. According to the State Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, the largest fish caught in the waterway was a 97-pound catfish in 1956. Over 50 years since its last sighting, we set aside some time to visit the Hutchins Ferry location. Though a beautiful and quiet area, the summer had drastically lowered the water level. Despite this potentially making a monster easier to spot, we were unsuccessful in having a modern sighting. I prefer to interview people for these episodes if I can. The Mammoth Cave National Park, unsurprisingly, wasn't interested in this. Indeed, even from multiple books I've used for this episode, quite a few make it a point to mention that rangers do not like to talk about mysterious happenings in a national park, which, considering their job and livelihood may be on the line, I kind of understand. So I decided to open up the question to the internet, and I got a few very intriguing responses. One of the most common general comments was the sightings and nebulous rumors of skinwalkers and Bigfoot. Most of the statements are just that, statements, with no story attached. Though there were news reports in 2019 and 2021 where shots were fired at an assumed Bigfoot, 
so watch out for that on the trails. However, I did speak with someone, who wished to remain anonymous, who was walking the Cedar Sink Trail on a winter afternoon. An incredibly loud scream rang out, which also seemed to be approaching them quickly. They leapt into the car, but didn't see anything out in the woods. This witness stated that they were familiar with local animal sounds, but they'd heard nothing like this and haven't since. When I asked if a human could have made the noise, they responded, quote, I don't think a human could have been that loud or made that noise. So that was an interesting encounter, but it was the only potential account of a creature in the woods that I found. However, one location did keep popping up with overwhelming regularity. It wasn't the main cave, crystal cave, or sand cave. There isn't a lot of verified information about Joppa Church. The National Park website says that it's a Baptist church built in 1862, but even before that, in the early 1800s, a log schoolhouse was where the church stands today. At first, that log schoolhouse also served as the church, then called Pleasant Union, until it was torn down in the early 1900s and an actual church was built. It has a small graveyard and it looks almost identical to the church I did visit, which contained Floyd's grave. This is where the verified information stops and the odd, unexplained events take over. A few of the more casual experiences include figures in the windows and photos of shadow figures. The more interesting stories include one poster in 2020 saying there's supposedly a talented violinist buried in the cemetery and that visitors sometimes hear the violin music. One poster had heard from people that she knew that when they visited, the Bible on the podium flew open and turned to a specific page. What was on that page, I'm not sure, but I'm dying to know. In the end, Joppa Church has had a lot of recent activity and has built quite a reputation online, but it's frequently the same repeated rumors, or it follows the same situation as Lake Lanier in that people simply say it's haunted, but without first-hand knowledge or proof of it. I also can't find any historical precedent for it being haunted. But who knows? Maybe we'll find out more later or from other sources that I didn't find. In recent, less spooky news, several, quote, spoon-like teeth were found in a cave wall and ceiling. These teeth belong to the patellodont shark species, called Tolson's scraper tooth, which lived 300 to 350 million years ago. For perspective, the first primitive trees were beginning to form at that time. This shark was named after the cave guide, Kelly Tolson, who found an instigated study of the fossils. Something that I found really sweet was that, as a surprise, the team hid from Tolson that they were going to officially name the shark species after her. She seemed very excited about it in the video interview I watched. Our last stop is a little further north to Wilder, Kentucky, to revisit Bobby Mackey's Music World. A correction to one piece of the episode was sent in by my group's tour guide, Alex. Now, if you haven't listened to the episodes about Bobby Mackey's, I highly recommend you go listen to them now and come back, as the context to this correction is important. Alex was very supportive of the episodes, but mentioned that I had maybe misspoken about the theory of what happened to Pearl Bryan's head. For years, retellings of the legend claimed that her head was thrown down the well in the basement of Bobby Mackey's, 
which then evolved to speculate that her head was thrown into a furnace. Alex pointed out that in the episode, I had said that many theorized that Pearl Bryan's head was thrown into the furnace at the distillery to dispose of the evidence. This was incorrect, as he had said that it's believed that her head was potentially thrown into the furnace at the college. After a minute or two of processing after reading this, the gears started to turn. Remember, Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling were attending Ohio Dental College in Cincinnati. Very notably, the police found a pair of trousers covered in dried mud and blood in Jackson's locker at the college. Although Jackson dismissed the trousers as belonging to someone else, this historical context adds another element of support for the modern-day theory. Instead of the distillery being an out-of-the-way and potentially conspicuous stop, it would do away with the location entirely. Jackson and Walling either disposed of the head in Kentucky before they returned to the college, or they brought the head with them to the college in Ohio to dispose of in the furnace. Despite the correction to the modern-day theory, I find the former to be much more likely. It would reduce the number of locations visited with evidence, as well as the number of potential witnesses. I'm of the opinion that it was disposed of in between. The Ohio River. he just committed the murder in Kentucky. he decapitated Pearl to try to hide her identity. And he now carried the bloody head in a leather bag that, if you'll recall, was later found by saloon keeper John Kugel. Would you want to carry that across the river and through the city of Cincinnati to the college? That sounds like far too many potential witnesses to me. He'd have wanted to get rid of the head as soon as possible. With them having to cross the river to get to Cincinnati, the river would have become a convenient vehicle to transport the most damning piece of evidence far away from them. Another reason why I believe this is a more viable option is because of what Jackson told the police. In the police interview with Jackson, he confirmed that the bloody bag had contained the head. He also said that he supposed that the head was dumped in the river. While he refused to truly confirm that, he also added that he definitely disposed of a skirt, petticoat, stockings, and other pieces of evidence in the river. This confession to dumping evidence in the Ohio River right after the murder potentially reinforces my thought that he sent the head over with the clothing. We may never know, and though there were multiple heads discovered in the river at that time, we didn't have DNA testing to confirm the identities of any of these victims. The correction aside, I do have some news in regards to Bobby Mackey's. The business is temporarily moving to Mugby's Biker Bar and Restaurant in Florence on December 1st, so that the original building can undergo construction. The building has a lot of history that I would prefer to see preserved, but when we visited, we weren't allowed to go into quite a few places. I could tell just from looking at some of these areas that it wasn't particularly safe, so I definitely understand the need for change. A few internet groups and pages quickly became distressed at the perception that the entire building would be leveled, which prompted me to look into just how much change was going to occur. After looking into a few resources, it seems more like this is a restoration and remodeling situation, as opposed to total destruction. Though I haven't been able to speak to Bobby Mackey personally, it sounds like Bobby Mackey's music world isn't going to disappear and hopefully it will be a lot safer for people to enjoy once these changes are made. 
Thanks for stopping by for a little bit more of Season 1. I'm always looking for more updates or stories of all of these and future locations. If you have your own experiences or any local news in regards to these sites, please feel free to send them in to backawayslowlypodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, if my initial research is anything to go by, I have a lot of reading to do for Season 2. This will take a few months, but I hope that this episode was a nice bonus. I'll keep you all posted via the podcast socials for general series updates, but until Season 2, please be safe this holiday season.